Our sermon text reading comes from the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 14. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town, and Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them and the glory of the Lord shone around them and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger. And suddenly, there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I've been hearing this over and over again on my little playlist for the holiday season. It's the most wonderful time of the year you know, that great Christmas carol, or is it? I think most of you would agree the Christmas season with all its expectations and festivities, decorations and celebrations can actually leave you somewhat wanting, trying to bring family together, especially when kids get married and you now have in-laws. Is it our turn to be together this year? You know, I think about that movie that some of you have probably watched already this year, Christmas Vacation, right? I mean, it's just one of the classic comedy Christmas movies. You know, Clark Griswold, he just has the greatest intentions. He wants to have all the family together, both sides of the family, and the thing ends up being a complete disaster. And if you remember, at one part of that movie, uh, there's some baggage, there's luggage sitting by the door, and he, he says, what's this? And, and his wife's uh, parents said, we're leaving. And he says, oh, no, you're not. We're in this together. And they fight through it. And he just says, we're going to have the hap, hap, happiest time imaginable. You won't be able to wipe the smiles off your face. He had these great expectations. And then there's the whole gift component, which is usually marginal. As a kid, for whatever reason, I remember my parents could never actually get me the gift that I asked for. They always came up with something else which I didn't really understand. I remember when I was 10 years old, I wanted one thing. I wanted a football uniform. You know, with the helmet and the pads and the jersey and the pants and, and I was just sure I was gonna get it. I saw the box sitting under the tree. And it's, you know, it's like this and I'm thinking, well, you know, it could be a helmet 
the pads could be here on the jersey and the pants could be stuffed inside the helmet. And I opened the package with great anticipation and it was a basketball. And I mean, I, I, mean, I was just crushed. You know, it just didn't measure up to what I was hoping for. On a serious note, the season can end up magnifying what's not right. Perhaps the pain of loss, we've experienced that in our own congregation just recently. Perhaps it's another year ending in self-disappointment. This isn't what I wanted. I had planned something completely different. So I made all these vows at New Year's and here we are at the end of the year and nothing's changed. You know, I was watching a show the other day called Yellowstone. Have any of you seen this show? It's, I don't recommend it because it ended up being kind of vile and we stopped watching it, but there was this one where Kevin Costner, the main actor uh, whose grandson just got kidnapped, says to his son, he says, you know, this life, my life, has been one long progression of losing everything I love. And he looks at his son and he says, not this time. They put together a whole group of guys, and they went out and killed everybody and got the kid back. It was really awesome. <clears throat> but then there's this Advent theme called joy that we land on today in the midst of all this. And I have to say, I'm excited about this message because joy is vital to the Christian life and yet it seems to be lacking in the lives of many, if not most Christians. It doesn't make any sense. But joy, when rightly understood and experienced, when it's informed by scripture, will not only get you through this Christmas season with its many failed expectations, but moreover, it will carry you through all of life, despite all the loss and all that isn't right. So to get there, I wanna talk briefly about, I'm gonna do it three ways, just the first two are gonna be very brief, and then the last one is gonna be where we're gonna spend our time. The centrality of joy, the meaning of joy, and then we're gonna spend the rest of the time exploring and apprehending the fullness of joy for our good and for God's glory. So the first thing is the centrality of joy. I mean, there's this thing called joy in scripture and you know, just how central is it? How foundational is this thing we call joy? Well, in the text that was read, which by the way is, I'm not actually preaching from this text. This is a topical sermon on joy. And this text during the Christmas season at the birth of our Lord really touches on joy. But think about it. In, in Luke chapter 2, the angels, they announced the birth of the Messiah at the pinnacle of human history to the shepherds who were out in the field. And then the one angel says to them, fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. And then if we read on, we see one of the most amazing manifestations of joy imaginable. Immediately upon making this announcement of the birth, the multitude of angels can no longer even contain their invisibility on account of joy. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among men with whom he is pleased. 
right away we see that joy is foundational to this angelic message. And why not? This is their moment. Listen to what Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 12. It says, it was revealed to them, talking about the angels, that they were serving not themselves, but you in all the things that have been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things which the angels long to look. That's what was happening here. Like the very reason for their existence as messengers of the Savior who would come is now born this night. Then we look at Jesus as he goes into his ministry for three and a half years and at the pinnacle of the final days of Jesus' earthly ministry, he says to his disciples, and this is really hours before he's arrested and, and ultimately crucified, in John 15, verse 11, he says, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. I mean, it's just so central to what Jesus is doing. And then closely linked to that is in Hebrews chapter 12, verses uh, one and two, it says, he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Joy is central to Jesus's rescue mission of us. Then you take the apostles, 1 John chapter one, after laying out their in-person experience with Jesus Christ, the one we looked at and touched and saw and heard, we proclaim him to you. And then they conclude this prologue in verse four by saying, and we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. You see, joy is central to the whole thing, to the angels, to Jesus, to the apostles. And it's central to us. Listen to what Peter goes on to say in uh, uh, chapter one, verse eight in First Peter. He says to all of us, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. That's the goal that we would lay hold of this so deeply that we would rejoice with joy that is so profound that it's hard to put into words. We can barely express it. Now let me ask you a question, be honest. Does that describe you? Does that describe the state of joy that you're living in? I would have to say, and I'm speaking for myself, Probably not. And yet, according to God's most holy word, inexpressible joy ought to be central to the believer. Why is it so often lacking? I think it's a fair question for all of us. Why? Why is it lacking? Why aren't we just bubbling over with joy? I think a big part of it, of the lack of joy, among other things, could simply involve a misunderstanding of what joy actually is. And I and we'll, we'll transition to the meaning of joy, and I think you'll see it right as I bring out some uh, uh, definitions from the dictionary. If you look at the most recent version of Merriam-Webster's dictionary, what you're gonna find is joy is basically synonymous with happiness. Uh, three meanings, 
a, a feeling of great happiness, a source or cause of great happiness. Number three, success in doing, finding, or getting something. No wonder we're not joyful. I mean, if that's, if that's the definition that we're embracing, uh, man, joy is minimally a roller coaster ride, right? Because only, it only comes when really good stuff is happening to you. Now, compare this to uh, Noah Webster's dictionary of 1828. Noah Webster, a Christian man, some say that Noah Webster had the entirety of Scripture memorized, Old Testament and New Testament. Listen to this definition, three definitions. The passion or emotion excited by the acquisition or expectation of good. Secondly, joy is a delight of the mind from the consideration of the present or assured approaching possession of a good. Three, joy to my soul and transport to my lay. I don't know what that one means, but that, that's how they talked back then, right? <clears throat> but, but don't you agree, Noah has the correct version of joy. That's, that's the version of joy that we should embrace. On the one hand, joy is the passion or emotion excited by the eternal salvation that belongs to believers through the incarnation and completed work of Jesus Christ. But on the other hand, joy is the emotion excited by the promises of God as to what awaits us. You hear us say this often, it's the already, but also it's the not yet. Already salvation is ours as a free gift, but we await the fullness of that. The entering of a new heavens and a new earth where righteousness will actually dwell and where there will be no more pain or sorrow or suffering or death and there will be no more shedding of tears, save perhaps tears of joy. We're not there yet, but it's ours. It's the sure promises of God and it belongs to us. In a real sense, joy is like faith. You know, the classic definition of faith is from Hebrews chapter one, you know, the hall of faith and all of chapter 11, but Hebrews chapter one, verse one says faith, now faith is the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. In that Greek word, what's being portrayed there is it's believing in something as if you are already experiencing it. It's the assurance of things hoped for and the assurance of things not seen. And joy is very much the same way. So with that in mind, let's transition, and this is where we'll spend the rest of our time, to the fullness of joy with the goal of coming closer to experiencing true joy in the spirit of what Jesus Christ declares to his disciples. Remember, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. So let's look at the fullness of joy and let me start with a proposition. Remember the goal is for all of us to come closer to experiencing the joy that we have seen here in scripture. I believe 
we can grow and come closer and closer to understanding and experiencing that fullness of joy as we embrace a threefold discipline, a threefold biblical discipline. And here they are thanksgiving, knowledge, and practice. First of all, the discipline of thanksgiving. You know, one of, a very famous passage of the Apostle Paul is Philippians chapter 4, in verses 4 through 7. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Be joyful in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. I don't like that. It's, I like the old New American Standard Version that says, let your gentle spirit be known to everyone. In the midst of all the craziness, let your Christian gentle spirit be made known to everybody else that's freaking out, if you will. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about any, every, anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And here's the result. The peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, I think that we are living in a, a culture that, of entitlement, basically. I, I, you know, everywhere I look, it just feels like we all feel entitled to certain things. This is what I deserve, and if I don't get it, then something's wrong. And while being an image bearer of God Most High certainly entitles us to human dignity and to many benefits, the reality that we must live with is this is a very broken and sin-stained world. And Paul tells us that creation itself is groaning for redemption. It, it, it's not an ideal situation. If we take a realistic, sobering, biblical view of this reality when something does go right, instead of feeling entitlement, we would actually have the feeling of gratitude even for something as simple as a loaf of bread on the table. When's the last time any of us have ever not felt entitlement over a loaf of bread sitting on the table we, that we just simply take for granted? See, the problem with entitlement in this fallen world, you seldom get what you think you deserve, and when you don't, you'll be disappointed, if not crushed. But if you can transition away from entitlement and move more toward gratitude, it changes you. When stuff goes wrong, it's like, that's the world we live in, right? That, that, that's the result of sin. That's a, that's a world groaning for redemption. What did I expect? Kind of like that book I'm trying to write. It's always something. Right, because that, that's, the, that's the situation we're in. When stuff goes right, you say, wow, thank you, Lord. In no way am I gonna take that for granted. The older I get, the more grateful I become for moments. Moments that for decades I took for granted. Moments with my wife, my children, my grandchildren, you, friends, just special little moments, nothing spectacular happening, just being together, just enjoying some of the gifts that God gives us. 
I'm always struck by the rebuke of God toward the religious people of that day back in Psalm 50. You know, in Psalm 50, you know, they're all upset because they think God's mad at them and he doesn't, they don't know why God's silent, why God isn't blessing them. And, and God says, and, and you know, by their way, they're offering sacrifices left and right to all these dead animals. And God says, not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. I will not accept a bull from your house or a goat from your folds. Keep in mind, the pagans would offer sacrifices because they were feeding their gods. And so the more sacrifices, the more dead animals they would offer to their gods, the happier their god was because he was able to eat more. That, that was the picture. And you know, Israel would tend to get carried away uh, by the different cultures that surrounded them. And he says, I'm not gonna take a, a bull or a goat from your house. For every beast of the forest is mine to cat, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I wouldn't tell you, for the world in its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? That's how far they had fallen in thinking that this is what they needed to do to appease the God of the universe, right? And here's what he says. Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise. And call on me in your day of trouble and I will rescue you, and you will glorify me. You see, that's, that's what God wants. It's a broken world. Things are messed up, but God is just saying, hey, I got you, but just come to me in a spirit of thanksgiving and praise. And Paul gives us a tool to help us better uh, develop the discipline of thanksgiving in Philippians 4. We read verses 4 through 7, and then we usually stop there, but I love what verse eight says. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. See, part of the discipline of developing that spirit of thanksgiving toward the goal of the fullness of joy Paul says, think about these things. There's plenty to be joyful about, even if it's by faith and not by sight. And then James takes thankfulness and the fullness of joy to a whole nother level. In James chapter one, he says, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. In a real sense, he's saying, be thankful when stuff goes wrong. What in the world's going on there? I mean, talk about counterintuitive. Well, this leads to the second discipline. If we're going to really develop and establish and experience a spirit of joy, knowledge, the discipline of knowledge. And that's part of what Paul is getting as he calls us to rejoice as we think about the good things, but it goes way beyond that. We are also called to rejoice in trials because of the knowledge that God is at work in them. Think about how crazy that is. Rejoice in trials? Yeah, because God is at work in that trial. Call it all joy, my brothers, when you meet various trials, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This isn't 
taking difficult times, and I've seen Christians do this, and then turn everything cliche-ish. Oh, it's okay. You know, the, the Lord has everything handled. It's just, it's just surfacy. No. Mourn, cry, grieve, but develop the discipline of welcoming trials with the sure knowledge that God is accomplishing something in you that could not be accomplished apart from the trial. It's not just gratuitous trials. God uses everything to accomplish what God is trying to accomplish in you. And can't we be joyful about that? We can rejoice in that. We can be thankful for that, even though it's painful. Perhaps the exclamation point in embracing the counterintuitive reality of this is Romans 8.28, where Paul says, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purposes. In the midst of sorrow, we know with unwavering certainty that God is at work for our good. And dear friends, that knowledge has its foundation on what God has done, on what God is doing, and what God will do through past, present, and the future work of his son Jesus Christ for you. A little nuance with great importance back in that Hebrew passage. In Hebrews chapter 12, one and two again, he says, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and here it is, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. The one who, for the joy set before him, endured the cross, is seated in the position of all authority and rule, and he is in charge of everything, and he is ruling everything from his kingdom, from his throne in heaven. He is not asleep at the wheel, nor has he forgotten you. He's got you. I think that's reason for joy. He's got you. Back to my trivial example. See if you can make the connection. You know, I wanted the football uniform, but I got the basketball. And you know, I gotta tell you, I wore the dimples off that basketball. I wore it down to that rubber layer underneath. I played with it so much. What in the world would I have done with a football uniform? Number one, it's a team sport, and if you join a football team, they have uniforms and helmets and everything that they give you. You do not need your own. Here's what would have happened. I would have put that football uniform on, and I would have went outside, and everybody in the neighborhood would have made fun of me. And my dad knew that. My dad, I could just see him now smiling and say, Danny wants a football uniform, but he has no idea what a silly gift request that is. I'm getting him a basketball. My father knew better than me. Okay, so we're seeking the fullness of joy and the final discipline I wanna bring to our attention that I believe keeps us back from experiencing joy. It's been true in my own life. It's been true in many of the people I've talked to over the years is the discipline of practice. <clears throat> Continue on with me one more verse in that Philippians 4 passage. You're probably thinking, why didn't he just preach from Philippians 4? But verse 9, right after he said, think about the good things, listen to what he says in first, verse 9. What you have learned 
and received and heard from me, which is nothing short of God's holy word, right? This is the Apostle Paul who was inspired by the Holy Spirit to reveal God's word to us. Practice these things. They're not just good ideas that I wanted to throw out there. He says, practice these things and the God of peace will be with you. He's talking about obedience to God's word. If, 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 if we want to experience the joy of our salvation, that inexpressible joy filled with glory, it involves obedience to God's most holy word. Some of you are probably familiar with the three uses of the law of God, yes? First use of the law is the, the civil use of the law to restrain evil in the land. You know, if you do this, you're going to jail. You know, that kind of thing, the civil use. And we have that today in our culture. The second use is the pedagogical use, which is, it, it's like a mirror that you look into and you see who you really are in your sin, and it leaves you utterly hopeless and helpless to do anything about it, save kneel at the foot of a bloodstained cross to a savior who came to save you from your sins. There's nothing you can do about it. It shows you who you really are. That's what Jesus tried to do, if you think about it, with the Pharisees. Oh, they had this list of rules. They think they're keeping Oh, you think you're keeping them? If you look at a woman with lust, you're committing adultery with her in your heart. You're not keeping God's law. You need a savior. You need a savior. All right, so the, so the second use of the law leaves you helpless, but the third use of the law, it's for believers. It's for those who have trusted in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They've trusted that Jesus has forgiven their sins and has granted them the free gift of eternal life. And the third use of the law is a guide to grateful living. We're back to that Thanksgiving theme. It's a guide to grateful living. It's not keeping the law as a means to obtain God's favor. It's subjecting yourself to it with a spirit-filled desire to keep it because you have God's favor. Huge difference, right? God has blessed you. God has saved you. God has redeemed you. God has forgiven your sins. And you say, Daddy, tell me what to do. That's what I want to do. We want to we be obedient because we have God's favor. And because you also have the Spirit, John mentioned this in his prayer, who convicts us of sin, if you are not living your life in a manner worthy of the call, you will lack the peace that surpasses human understanding, and you will lack the fullness of joy, that inexpressible joy. It's just, it's just true. It's just true. If you're going your own way, you are not going to experience this fullness of joy that Jesus said, I want for you. It's not going to happen. Now, we live in a day where the culture of darkness is influencing and captivating Christians. Everywhere we turn, you turn on a TV show. Laura and I are struggling to find a TV show that we can watch. We'll get one or two or three episodes in and everything is sex and swearing and drugs and killing and it's like... How could that possibly be good for us? But that's what the culture's doing. Immoral relationships, that's what we see every time. 
And so it, it's the, the, the darkness is influencing and captivating Christians, but dear friends, those of you who are saved, and by the way, if you're not a follower of Christ yet, we're honored that you're here. Thank you for coming and at least exploring the faith with us. But dear Christians, you were saved from sin, not saved unto sin. He didn't save us and then to send us back out and be disobedient to God's word. He saved us from sin, to move away from sin, to turn and to go a different direction. As I have encountered struggling Christians uh, through counseling for over 30 years, Christians dealing with a staleness in their faith. I hear that from some of you, finding themselves just going through the motions, you know, I'm not feeling it. In virtually every case, when I inquire as to how they are living, I find that they are caught up into some sin of some kind, and though their salvation is secure, make no doubt about that, the enemy who walked them into that sin then uses that sin to bring guilt and shame upon them, which leads them to anxiety, depression, brokenness, and doubt, and joyless Christianity. Think about that. The very same enemy that walks you right into it, once you get there, says, oh, what kind of a Christian are you? Huh? What a phony you are. That's how it works. Look what John says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. I believe this is so true. And now little children abide in him so that when he appears, you may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Last night, Laura and I went to a, a concert at LCA, uh, Evanescence and Hailstorm, and uh, Amy Lee from Evanescence just came out with, an, you guys are all laughing, um, <clears throat> Amy Lee came out with a new album, which I highly recommend, it, it's, it really is good. And one of the songs is called Far From Heaven. And, and the chorus is this. What if I can't see your light anymore because I've spent too long in the dark? And then she goes on to say it in another verse. She says, and I'm on my knees uh, without shame begging to believe, but I feel so far from heaven. Is there anyone out there did you give up on us? Will you forgive me if I can't see your light anymore because I've spent so long in the dark? Amy, the answer is yes. He will forgive you for this simple reason. Your salvation isn't about what you do or don't do. It's about what Jesus did the one who hung on the cross and said, it is finished. Nonetheless, if you are going to discover and experience the fullness of joy, if we're gonna sit here next year at this time and, and you guys are gonna have smiles so big that nobody could wipe it off your face. I mean, you're just bubbling over with joy for the reasons we talked about today, not superficial reasons, because everything you wanted to happen happened the way you wanted it to happen so you could be happy. No, but for the reasons we're talking about today, 
if you're going to discover and experience that once and for all, through good times and bad, develop the disciplines of thanksgiving, knowledge, and practice, and get ready to experience the fullness of joy that belongs to you. Let's pray. Lord, we do struggle because of our own sin, because of the sin of the world, because of the culture we're living in, because of our love of comfort. Um, But we come to you. We see what you're calling us to. We see what you have for us. And we pray, dear Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, we pray that in the power of your spirit, you would open our hearts and our minds and we would move closer and closer to experiencing the fullness of joy that you have for us. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.